0: Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the second in a series of podcasts about semiconductors in advance of an event being held by the foundation on the 24th of May on the UK Semiconductor Strategy. My guest this week is Scott White, founder and executive director, strategic initiatives at Pragmatic. Scott White, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, great to be here. So for those of us less familiar with Pragmatic, Can you give us a brief introduction to the company? Sure.
1: So we make flexible semiconductor devices. So as distinct from the silicon chips that make up most of our uh, electronics today, which are obviously made of a rigid bit of silicon usually packaged inside a a black plastic box and soldered onto a PCB, uh, we make chips that are extremely thin and flexible. So thinner than a human hair, flexible enough to be embedded in just about any form factor. And they're also about 10 times lower cost to produce than silicon. So we have uh, a couple of different categories of uh, applications that we look at for our technology. One is replacing silicon in existing applications where we can deliver equivalent functionality, uh, but allow that with a a cost point that is better and a supply chain that is far more uh, controllable. But the biggest opportunities for our technology are usually around extending it into applications that you would never consider putting a silicon chip. And so, a good example for that would be packaging for fast moving consumer goods. If you think about everything you might buy in the supermarket, there's actually value to embedding electronics in the packaging to allow better traceability, proof of provenance, and even ensure the best recycling and reuse outcomes for that technology. That would never be feasible to do with silicon, but with our technology, it actually becomes viable. So there's a huge opportunity for new use cases, uh, particularly in extremely high volume uh, consumables, such as those markets I've talked about for our technology, uh, as well as things that leverage that unique thin flexible form factor uh, where we can extend electronics to be even more pervasive than it is today.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the technology to make these flexible, low-cost transistors and chips. How does that technology work and, and how is it developed?
1: It basically uses similar kinds of manufacturing techniques as we see in the silicon industry, but we don't have any of the extremely high cost or high energy or long duration processes that you find in silicon. Um, So because we have a very different material set, we basically can do everything via a, a very simple set of serial processes of depositioning and patterning of thin film layers in order to build the complete stack. We happen to do that on a a rigid carrier so that we can use equipment that's used to handling rigid silicon wafers. But at the end of our process, you peel off the, the flexible wafer and you reuse that carrier in the process so it doesn't form part of the cost structure. So that's how we make it. And that's how we get that unique form factor but also the dramatically low cost structure but we do that with a manufacturing process that can still leverage um, very well established and proven manufacturing techniques so we can get the same kind of high yield and production scalability as you see in the conventional semiconductor industry
0: and where did that technology originally come from was it something that the company itself developed is it sort of taken out of a research environment how did it sort of come together
1: Yes, it, it was completely developed within the within the company. So we kind of taken, I guess, more the, the US style approach to technology startups where you start with a business problem and a set of customers that are really excited about that and then go away and solve uh, all of the key technical challenges that needed to actually make that work. So we've developed, um, over the last decade or more, uh, a portfolio of more than 250 patents, uh, as well as a huge base of, of know-how and and a few trade secrets that embody the key inventions we needed to make reliably transistors and integrated circuits with, with these kinds of materials and to translate that into a, a high-yield, high-throughput manufacturing process.
0: Well, you talked in the answer to the first question about uh, some of the applications for this technology, but but what are the sort of the growth markets that you're targeting for these sort of flexible devices? How big can this market get for flexible chips?
1: So one of the, the key application sectors is radio frequency identification, RFID. Um, So RFID, for those that aren't familiar with it, is basically a way of embedding a unique identity into an item that can then be digitally and wirelessly read. So think of it a bit like a barcode on stuff you'd buy in the supermarket, but it's unique to the item rather than just to the product category, and it doesn't require a camera, it it can just be, be read wirelessly. Uh, This is already a very large market, about 30 billion items a year are tagged with RFID today. But with silicon-based solutions, it's only viable on relatively expensive items. So uh, retail apparel, for example, is is the single biggest market for that. With our technology, because of the, the thin flexible form factor and that dramatically lower cost point, we can extend that to a much larger range of product categories. And so if you think about areas like fast moving consumer goods, so food, beverages, uh, home products, personal care products, things like that, that is trillions of items per year that potentially can benefit from having this unique item level traceability. So that's just sort of one aspect of what you could do with the technology. When we look at other markets, um, you can extend those same kinds of RFID solutions into uh, other sectors. So healthcare, for example, where there's similar challenges around tracking consumable items in healthcare systems that also can benefit from that same item level traceability. But we can also go beyond that kind of simple RFID functionality into things like sensors and controllers. Uh, So again, if I take healthcare as an example, that we have a number of projects working on things like wearable smart patches things that could detect diagnose or monitor certain conditions but do that in the form factor of a smart plaster that you you buy from your local chemist for a a dollar or two uh, and stick on to to, monitor something rather than what we're used to, which is having very expensive, cumbersome boxes of electronics that generally can only be used in in, surgeries or or hospitals and cost hundreds of dollars to to employ.
0: And I can see how the functionality Of flexible RFID really helps uh, compared with the rigid. How does the the cost compare with existing RFID?
1: So, uh, from a chip perspective, very roughly speaking, it obviously depends very much on the application, exactly so I design. But typically, we're around ten times lower cost than silicon. When we look at something like RFID it turns out that actually there's also leveraging, reducing costs of other parts of the solution. So we can simplify the antenna design, for example, because of the way the chip interacts with that antenna. And so from a total solution cost perspective, we see that with our technology, you can reduce that by around about 80% compared to silicon based solutions. So it's not just about a low cost chip, but also about how do you think about the total solution and optimize that taking advantage of the unique aspects of our technology.
0: Well, that suggests there's some massive opportunities for scale up. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that. And also what you see as the key challenges facing Pragmatic over the next few years. Is it making the company bigger for this market? What what do you see as those challenges?
1: Exactly right. So there is a there is a massive opportunity for scale up. So we we currently have our first fab operational in the northeast of England, and we're in the process of installing our second fab, which will be operational later this year. But we have in our business plan uh, deployment of over 100 fabs globally over the next decade. That in one sense sounds like an awful lot, but actually the total cost of that is less than a single silicon fab, uh, but will give us capacity roughly on par with somebody like TSMC in terms of throughput. So that gives an idea of the, the, the capital efficiency of our model as well as the scale at which we can produce. Uh, and, you know, that's the opportunity, but it's also our single biggest challenge at the moment is how we effectively execute on that scale up. We are a, you know, currently still a relatively small company, but growing very, very rapidly. So we've grown from around about 100 employees uh, 18 months ago to uh, well over 200 now and you know expect to continue to grow at that kind of rate. And we need to build up the entire organizational capability to uh, effectively you know, deploy these fabs, not just in the UK, but but elsewhere in the world uh, and you know, have the, the organizational infrastructure in place to do that
0: well. Just help me out. I was intrigued when you were saying that the cost of a fab was so much less, as well as the cost of the actual devices. What? Why is a, a fab using your technology so much less than one for silicon?
1: It's a, it's a very good question. So The the simple way of saying it is that as well as taking advantage of lower cost materials that give us a lower production cost, um, we have a much simpler process. So that means the, the nature of the tools we need to manufacture our equipment, although they are conventional semiconductor manufacturing tools, what we don't need is any of the really expensive ones you tend to find in a silicon fab. Beyond that, um, there's also some elements of our process because we've got a very, very fast production cycle time, we get economies of scale for high throughput production at a much more modular level. So to put some uh, context around that, a typical silicon fab has very long duration processes, particularly at the front end of line, the bits that are actually making the transistors. And so typically you will find the production cycle time for making a silicon uh, wafer from from the base silicon wafer itself through to fully fabricated chips is typically three to six months. In our process, it's less than 48 hours. So it's dramatically faster. Every single material layer is deposited in the space of a few minutes. It's patterned in the space of a few minutes. We go through that cycle for all the different material layers in the stack. Uh, And even when you sort of add in the scheduling overhead and so forth, you end up with an entire process cycle time. There's incredibly rapid by semiconductor standards. And because of that linked into then the very efficient utilization of the tools to be able to get very high throughput production, we can actually do that with a a very small number of tools linked to a process that inherently needs fewer types of tools in it anyway. So what you end up with is a a fabrication line that is, we kind of call it a fab in a box. It's, It's obviously not quite as simple as that in practice, but it is dramatically smaller in footprint and in capital cost uh, than a typical silicon fab. So we're talking something that takes a few hundred square meters of uh, total space compared to a typical silicon fab that would you know, usually be tens of thousands of square meters of clean room space, plus all the facilities you need around that.
0: That is really interesting and potentially really disruptive. Obviously, there's a number of things that we scale up. One of them is money. We could talk about that. One of them, though, is people. What kind of Skills do you need in the workforce, and do you do you have access to enough of the people to do the kind of scale up you want to do?
1: It's it's probably a complicated answer to it. In broad terms, yes, we do have access to it. When you look at it from a global perspective, so there is obviously a a very good pool of skilled talent around the world in this area. In the UK, we have some of that. Uh, We've lost a fair bit of it over the last few decades. You know, as as the semiconductor industry in the UK has. Um, progressively sort of moved out to the, the far east and elsewhere but there is still in a lot of areas there is a good base of talent we need to grow that over time but for what we need today it's certainly it's certainly okay one of the other key aspects of our model that the the model for that modular fabrication i was talking about it's also fully automated so actually the scalability of that does not need thousands of people to run all these fabs, you know, that each individual fab, once it's up and running, only requires a few dozen people to actually operate it. Uh, we obviously need a bigger infrastructure around that in terms of process engineering support and, and all those kinds of things to support various fabs. But the, the kind of per per fab scalability of, of people does not require us to have uh, the same access to talent that's needed in in most of the rest of the semiconductor industry and I think that's key to how we expect to scale this up and you know you, you kind of mentioned the comment that this this kind of dramatically different model for uh capital and, and modularity actually creates a number of really exciting opportunities for how you scale that and in particular one of the things that our customers are most excited about is it gives them the potential for truly localized semiconductor manufacturing compared with the, the Silicon world where, you know at best, you've got large countries like the US and, and you know, countries within the EU that are spending billions of dollars at the moment to try and onshore or reshore semiconductor manufacturing, but it's still being put in a fairly small number of locations that have the, the infrastructure and so forth to be able to, to actually scale semiconductor manufacturing, we can put a fab pretty much anywhere. And so what our large customers and our uh, customers concerned about strategic supply are really excited about is having a fab that is put inside or right next to their facilities uh, wherever they might be in the world and be able to do that. So those hundred fabs I talked about earlier, you know, we expect that probably roughly half of those will be located on customer premises or extremely close to customer premises, providing dedicated security of supply and effectively on-site, just-in-time production in a way that would never be possible with conventional semiconductor manufacturing.
0: And that suggests to me a huge amount of partnership between you and other organisations, both nationally potentially, but also internationally, and possibly not just partnership with commercial organisations, but you're going to be thinking about the the commercial environment of different countries and where to manufacture things. How do you see that kind of international partnership growing for Pragmatic?
1: Yes, we have we have ongoing discussions with multiple customers and multiple governments, as you might expect. So we we look at this probably first to say that the, the model for how we collaborate on this we've developed into what we're calling fab as a service so we understand that most of our customers that even though they might want their own fab they don't have the expertise to to actually operate a semiconductor line and to be honest we probably wouldn't want to hand it over to them because you know our core ip is, is how we've put this process together and how we run that and how we optimize it so the fab as a service model effectively gives the best of both worlds where the customer can own the fab have it where they are with that guaranteed security of supply, but we still operate it for them and guarantee the right quality of wafer output and ensuring that it's always building in the best process optimizations that we're developing across all of our lines. So when we then think about how that works in terms of the types of organizations we're partnering to do that, we look at it from two perspectives. One is high-volume commercial customers, and the other are uh, strategic uh, lower-volume customers. So in the commercial high volume side and RFID that we talked about before is a good example for this. Those are markets where any one customer, uh, as they scale the use of our technology, could easily have a requirement that is at least a fab's worth of capacity. And there is a very simple economic argument that when it gets to that scale, the benefits of being able to integrate that more closely into their downstream manufacturing and eliminate shipping material around the world, eliminate the, the challenges of having to manage inventory with extended supply chains and so forth, there's a there's a very simple economic argument that says it, it just makes better financial sense to put it there and, you know, and have it as a, as a dedicated manufacturing facility. On the strategic side, and this particularly applies to uh, the national security community, for example, or just companies that might need relatively low volume, but high levels of customization and, you know, and, and these components are absolutely critical to what they're doing. Automotive is a good example there. You know, your typical car has a thousand or more chips in it today. Some of them are very, very simple. You know, things like the controllers that make the windscreen wipers work. They might only cost five or ten cents. But actually, if you don't have that chip, you can't sell a hundred thousand dollar car. So these are industries where. The, you know, the the criticality of those components is such that the benefit of having a dedicated fab, even if they're not churning out billions of components every year, actually makes sense. Uh, And so, you know, with those ones and that's where a lot of our discussions with governments are focusing is where are the critical supply chains that, that the governments are trying to help manage for the industries that are important to those geographies. And our technology has a key role to play and be able to to truly localize that and provide guarantee of supply in those in those industries.
0: Well, let me take you back to the UK, because all of us are expecting, hoping in the next few days for the UK government to publish a a semiconductor strategy, which has been on the cards for at least two years what would you like to see in that strategy to ensure that companies like pragmatic can really uh, generate the the kind of things that you've been talking about
1: sure so be generally focused around three main aspects that we think are important for companies like pragmatic focused on on semiconductor manufacturing the first is that we do need a level playing field around incentives for manufacturing and in particular for the capital expense involved in that so even though our cost per fab is so much lower than silicon it is still the single biggest cost element of us scaling up manufacturing capacity so if we want that to happen in the uk that only makes financial sense for us if broadly speaking, the kinds of incentives that that we can get from the government here are aligned with those we could get from the US or EU or, or other places around the world, all of whom are, are offering very substantial incentives for onshoring for of semiconductor manufacturing. Secondly, uh, we think it's actually important to maximise domestic uh, demand for, for our manufacturing as much as possible. We, you know, we obviously recognize that the UK is a, a relatively small country on the global scale and our customer base is very international. So, you know, it's certainly not the case that the UK is ever going to be our biggest market, but the more demand we do have in the UK, the easier it is to justify continued scale up and manufacturing within the UK. And we think the government actually has a key role to play in that respect both as a direct customer. In areas like healthcare, I mentioned before, the NHS obviously you know, would be an ideal customer potentially, but at the moment, they're actually quite awkward to deal with as an, as an SME supplier. You have to deal with you know, dozens of individual NHS trusts. You know, There isn't really centralized procurement or any kind of centralized strategy in how they adopt new technologies like, like ours. So I think public procurement, but also uh, public policy that drives private sector adoption And a good example here might be to look at something like circular economy. I mentioned before that our technology can enable item level traceability of packaging. And one of the key benefits of that is being able to ensure that the packaging gets recycled or ideally reused in the most optimal way. And if you look at legislation in the EU around single use plastics, for example, that's driving very rapid uptake of technology solutions. To enable the elimination of single-use plastics in multiple industries, we don't really have anything equivalent in the UK. The, the closest we've got is is a focus on how do you eliminate plastic cutlery, um, which you know is is a tiny piece of the overall picture. So you know, stronger legislation that is driving things towards key national priorities also helps actually drive uptake of the right technology solutions that address those. So that's the second angle around domestic demand. And then the third piece of the puzzle from our perspective is around investment in businesses like ours. In the UK, we have a great environment for early stage venture investment. But as you scale, we do have a bit of a challenge around late stage Commercialization and industrialization. Uh, and we've seen that very clearly in the shift in our shareholder base as we've grown and scaled up the, uh, the funds we're raising to support that growth increasingly are coming from outside the UK. Now, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. Inward investment is, is obviously, broadly speaking, a, a positive thing. But if it's not balanced by a, an appropriate level of British investment, and from our perspective, ideally we would want to stay majority British-owned, in order to uh, have a clear case for why we continue to scale the business in the UK, uh, if we don't have that, then it, it progressively becomes more challenging to make a case for that, and you know if we look a couple of years down the line. At when we might IPO it dramatically changes the, the perspectives on whether listing in the in London would make sense is going to be very heavily dependent on what our shareholder base looks like.
0: Well, that's three really interesting angles, and uh, we're all waiting for this strategy. So uh, when it comes out, we can see just how far the government's been able to go along those three different lines. That's all we've got time for today, but we will follow this up, and uh, you'll have links to the strategy on our website as soon as it is published. But for today, Scott White, thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Scott White, founder and executive director, strategic initiatives at Pragmatic. The UK Semiconductor Strategy is the subject of an evening discussion event being organised by the Foundation for Science and Technology on the 24th of May. Details of that event, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk forward slash events. Also on the website are details of all our other events, our blogs, journals and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.